want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 20. Now, there are some people that are going to be very excited this morning because about 60 sermons ago, when we started Revelation, they were saying to me, we'll see how you do on chapter 20. And uh, so the day of reckoning, you might say, has arrived. Uh, So it's the Word of God, we're going to hear it read, and then we're going to plow in. And the title that I've chosen for this uh, sermon this morning is The Millennium Fiction. I know you're thinking Millennium Falcon. I know, I know some of you are thinking that, but that was the inspiration actually for Millennium Fiction, just to be honest, have the cards on the table. Anyway, let's... Let's focus on the text then. Let's hear the word of God. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ And they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So I said the title that I've chosen, Millennium Fiction, is meant to be enigmatic and provocative. The word millennium means different things to different people within the church, thinking of the church in its broadest sense. For some, the millennium signifies a massive success of the gospel at the end of this age where millions and millions of people are swept in a short period of time into the kingdom and society and culture become subservient to a greater Christendom with Christians in power. The Puritans thought of the millennium being a long, protracted age of gospel superiority. Patriarch of all Russia today thinks that the millennium can be introduced by waging war. Others take a different view. Uh, They look at the millennium as a period that begins after Jesus Christ comes again. So Jesus will come again. The dead will be raised. Resurrected people, only believers, will be resurrected, glorified. And instead of going to heaven, they'll stay on earth with him. And he will rule over an earthly kingdom. He will cause wars to cease and peace to reign over all the earth. And uh, you can imagine glorified saints living beside people who are just becoming Christians during that period, who are going to live and die while the glorified, it's a bit, bit untidy, but that's, that's the view. And there's one iteration of this view, and that is that Christ will reign on earth for a thousand years as a king of Israel, specifically. The sacrificial system will be reintroduced. There will be a temple built, rebuilt in Jerusalem, and and that will go on for a thousand years. In other words, they take the number, for the first time in all of the book of Revelation, the number literally, number one, and they see Jesus returning to become an earthly monarch, number two, and they see with him both the resurrected Christians and new Christians working together under Christ specifically based in Jerusalem and as an Israelite kingdom with all of the laws of Israel reintroduced. Those are at least three iterations of what people think of when they think of the millennium. Now this morning I want to ask a question. Is there an alternative that pays attention to the whole of biblical revelation? I want you to imagine... I don't know if if any of you have seen the series The Good Doctor. You haven't? It's a good series to watch if you're bored out of your tiny mind. Uh, But um, that's the the, uh, stimulation for this thought. Supposing we're all gathered in a a theater. uh, I don't know if you call them theaters here or not. That's what we call them in Britain, where there's an operation going on and the patient is brought, laid on the slab, and the medical people gather around them. Why don't you pretend that's what we're doing this morning? On the slab is the millennium. 
We're going to ask several questions about this patient that has presented itself to us. We are going to have called in some specialists, some of the great doctors of the church will join us to give their perspective on the patient. And I want us, first of all, to ask a question concerning the patient. What period has this patient lived? How long has it been around? Or what's its story, its backstory? And I think there's an answer. We can investigate how the story begins. And, the word is and in the Greek, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven. What does that introduction tell us about the timeline? Is the millennium, for example, just continuing the story that we've been looking at in the previous chapters, uh, 17, 18, 19? Uh, In other words, is it historically sequential to the events that we've been reading about? Or... As is usually the case in the book of Revelation, does the and I saw introduce a new vision, a new visionary experience? Elsewhere in the book of Revelation, and I saw usually indicates a transitional device that distinguishes a new literary literary segment into the story altogether. When you add the and to the angel coming down from heaven, when you add those two things together, without exception, that signals a new vision. A vision that suspends previous visions or takes us back before previous visions and usually identifies recognizable events that you can describe. This particular vision begins with the binding of Satan. Now, where does the idea of the binding of Satan originate? Well, the first place it comes up in the Bible is in Mark chapter 3, verse 27. The Lord Jesus has been casting out demons. People have been questioning his authority to cast out demons. And uh, Jesus tells a parable of Satan and his work He says, Satan is like a strong man armed who keeps his household and his goods secure. And they are secure, Jesus says, unless and until a stronger than he comes along who is able to break into the house, disarm the strong man, bind him, and then release his goods. Now, in the parable Jesus told, Satan is the strong man. His goods are people, people whom he has deceived, people whom he has led into sin, people whom he has kept, as it were, from believing in Christ. They're people like you and me, and, we're, and they're in bondage to Satan. And Jesus is saying to the people that. Uh, The human race is held captive. Let's call in Dr. Augustine, one of the great doctors of the church. He says, uh, he calls the devil the strong man, says Augustine, because he has the power to take captive the human race 
And Jesus means by his goods that which he has taken captive and who have been held by the devil in diverse sins and iniquities until until a stronger than he comes along to release them and to set them free and to bring them to everlasting life. Now, that's the very first instance of this image in the Bible. And it's this language then that's taken up in our text this morning. You notice this. This angel comes and he seizes the dragon and the dragon is identified, the serpent, the devil, the Satan. And he binds him for a thousand years and he throws him into the pit and he shuts and seals that prison so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Satan is bound. Jesus said that it happened precisely during his ministry. If I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then you know that the kingdom of God is among you. Now, let's think about that for a moment. It may seem incredulous to us this morning that we should say the devil is bound when we see so much of his evidence and presence all around us in our lives. The devil is a liar. People are lying to us all the time. The devil is a murderer. He's behind every killing. He kills souls by leaving them into sin. And he kills people. The devil is a destroyer. He destroys individuals, their lives, their careers, their reputations. He destroys the innocence of youth. He destroys. He is a destroyer. And he's an adversary. He's the enemy of God's people. In fact, Satan is presented in Scripture to us as the prince of this world, the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air, And when the devil comes to Jesus and tempts Jesus, he arrogantly offers Jesus all the kingdoms of this world and their glory. Now, the reality is that in spite of all of these titles, Satan has no intrinsic authority or dominion over the world and over its people. No intrinsic authority. God has not given him any power or authority as such. But the reality is that when Adam, and in him all of humanity, when Adam sinned, in his sin and in our revolt against God, both he, Adam, and we have aligned ourselves with Satan. Remember the illustration of of Simon Peter? He's just to confess Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of God. This wonderful confession. And Jesus has just told him he's going, to, he's going to be part of the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. And that's, his confession is going to be the key thing. And then when Jesus starts talking about the cross, Simon Peter pulls him aside and says, don't talk about the cross. That, that never happened to you. And he starts to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Any one of us at any time, by our resisting Jesus' will or resisting Jesus' way, can find ourselves being identified with Satan. For when we sin, we identify with Satan 
in his rebellion against God in the world. Well, here's the thing. Going back to the Garden of Eden, at Eden, the promise was made that the son of Eve would come and crush Satan under his feet. And with the coming of Jesus, that sentence has been executed. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 2. He says that Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing them to his cross. By doing that, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities of hell, that is, and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in it. Jesus is saying that, or Paul is saying about Jesus, that his cross, Jesus' cross, accomplishes the mighty victory of crushing Satan under his feet. And you can get this message from Jesus himself in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, there are there are some Jews, some Greeks rather, Gentile people, non-Jews, who've come to Jerusalem and they've he- heard about this uh, Messiah, this figure, Jesus. They come and they come to Philip, who's a Greek-speaking person from the Greek-speaking area uh, of Galilee. And uh, they come to him and they say, sir, we would see Jesus. And Philip brings them to Jesus. And Jesus' reaction to these people from foreign lands coming to see him is this. Listen to these words. Now is the kingdom, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. Same word for cast into the pit. Now, he says. Cast out. Now. It's emphatic in the original. And then Jesus goes on to say what the consequence will be of the devil being cast out. He says this, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, meaning his crucifixion, will draw all people, meaning people from many languages and cultures, people all over the earth, I will draw many people to myself. The casting out of the devil will mean the drawing to Christ of multitudes of people. In other words, the casting out is directly linked to the drawing in of people, the Gentiles, the nations, to Jesus. Now these two words then, to cast out and to bind, are the words we find here in action in Revelation 20. There's a binding and a casting into the pit. And do you notice the, the, the effect of this in the text that we have before us? The binding is limited. Did you notice the binding was limited? He's bound and he's cast out so that he might not deceive the nations. And for the nations, read Gentiles. Read the Gentiles. That he might not deceive the Gentiles. The very ones who were coming to see Jesus 
the very ones Jesus uh, rejoiced over because he saw the potential for the future of an ingathering from the Gentiles. Jesus was prompted to say in that very same chapter, John chapter 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he tells the story of the piece of seed, the grain of wheat. When you have it in your hand, it's useless. But if you throw it down to the ground and it dies, it bears fruit. Jesus is saying, if I die, Satan will not be able to prevent the Gentiles from believing and entering salvation. There will be a harvest of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. In other words, when we read the beginning of chapter 20, it begins with something we can identify in time. We can identify it based on the revelation of God in all of Scripture. And that point of time is, in fact, Jesus' life, and particularly the cross of Jesus. Satan's power to deceive the nations was curbed. He cannot, during this age, he cannot stop the spread of the gospel. And Jesus promised this gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations. And then the end will come. And isn't that the story? Isn't that the fact of history? It's a matter of observation. The gospel has been unstoppable in spite of persecution from within and uh, from without, rather, and sin from within. Of course, Satan is active still through demons who spread false teaching, doctrines of demons, Paul calls them. Of course, Satan is active through anti-Christian Uh, experiences by people all over the world and false prophets who are going around and the ultimate antichrist, of course, and false prophet who are to come. It is because Satan is bound that the words of Isaiah suddenly take on significance. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, on them has the light shone. Or the words of Jesus, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all the nations. Or the promise of Jesus, many shall come from north and south, east and west, and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Satan has been bound. Then the second thing that's identifiable is the reign of the saints. Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. This vision is based on Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel writes, I looked, and as I looked, thrones were in place. The Ancient of Days, Almighty God, took his seat. One like the Son of Man was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that, get the connection with the nations, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. So that's what it's presenting with. What, what kind of reign are we talking about here? 
Well, it takes place where the thrones are. Throughout the book of Revelation and in the book of Daniel, the thrones are in heaven. That's where the rain takes place, therefore. The thrones are in heaven. The 1,000, like every other number in the book of Revelation, is, is, a, is a symbol. It's not an exact figure. None of the others were or are. So therefore, it represents a period, a very long period, that begins with the crucifixion of Jesus and ends, well, ends with the release of the devil for a few little while, and then the final judgment. We've seen all this before. We're just seeing it now from a different perspective. Now, in particular, in this text, there is, a, there is a concern for, and this has been true right throughout the book of Revelation, because John is writing at a specific time where martyrdoms are rising, Christians are being killed, people are wondering about their loved ones who have died a martyr death, also they're wondering about their own confessing brothers and sisters who are dying, living their normal lifespan and then dying, so they're concerned about the martyrs and the confessors. And Jesus, uh, the early Christians were, were concerned, how is Jesus dealing with those people who have gone to be with him? We saw this in chapter 7, a great multitude no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages are before the throne of God and serve him day and night. In chapter 3, Jesus said, that those who conquer, I will grant them to sit with me on my throne. In chapter 1, it says Jesus has loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us kings and priests to God. Right now we are. Right now you are a king and a priest to God. If you're a child of God, male or female, doesn't matter by the way, we are kings and priests to God. Now bear that in mind then. These martyrs and confessors are said to be with Jesus because they have come to life. They've come to life and they've come to reign with Christ. Their coming to life is tied to what is called in the text the first resurrection. Look at that. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Let's ask St. Augustine, one of the doctors of the church, what he thinks about that. Well, he says, yes, there are theoretically two kinds of resurrection. There's a spiritual resurrection and there's a bodily resurrection at the end of time when all the dead will be raised up bodily. That will be the final resurrection. And so we read in our text that Augustine's right. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. On the other hand, there are those who come to life now. Those who are called right now blessed and holy. And they're blessed and holy because they have a share in the first resurrection. Now, that's a, you, you'll see that there are different forms of words in the text. There's the mention of 
resurrection, and then there's a mention of people coming to life. It's distinguishing those things. Resurrection is only ever properly used when we're talking about physical, bodily resurrection. So, of whose physical, bodily resurrection can we say it was the first? Blessed and holy is the one who shares in it. Over such, the second death, the final judgment, has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Take what's said about these people, blessed and holy. Back in 1906, Henry Sweet of Cambridge University pointed out that this is the fifth beatitude in this letter. It's distinguished from all the rest with this addition that's made to it, blessed and holy. The one to whom this beatitude belongs, in other words, is not only eternally happy, but eternally holy. They're worthy of the name saint. They are both beatified and canonized by the voice of the Spirit of Jesus. And you can identify them. You can identify them. These are those over whom the second death has no power. They may die the first death. Their bodies may die. But their souls eternally will not die. Who are those people? You know them. You're one of them. Or you're sitting beside one of them in the church today. The destiny purchased by Jesus Christ for all Christians will be realized in those who partake in the first resurrection. For the martyrs and the confessors, that is, those who die in the Lord, there is this priestly service in the glory, in the perfection of God's immediate presence. And do you see who the object of their worship and service is? It is him with whom they reign. Who do they reign with? God and Christ. So whose resurrection is the first? The Bible only ever speaks of two bodily resurrections. Jesus' resurrection and the general resurrection. The general resurrection is talked about in Daniel chapter 12. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. Paul the Apostle says the same thing, Acts 24. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. That's the final or second resurrection. What the Father has given to the Son is life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. What the Father has as God has, the Son has as God of God. And he has authority to execute judgment. Jesus says, For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and 
come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. On that day, all are raised bodily, then separated the sheep from the goats. So what is this first resurrection then, in which there is life and a life beyond life in heaven, even ahead of being raised to life bodily? Well, many, many years ago, when I was a young minister, barely out my short pants, uh, I, I had... Uh, I was saving up Westminster Theological Journals and I got the spring of the 1977 volume and I still have it. I was able to go and put my hand on it, which is encyclopedic knowledge I have of my books of where they are. I'd humbly say that. And uh, there's a great article in that by Philip Edgecombe Hughes, who used to teach at Westminster and, and elsewhere, massive, wonderful commentary in the book of Hebrews. And uh, he, he addresses in the journal, this question. Here's his answer. There is only one such resurrection known to the New Testament that is other than that last judgment, that last resurrection. Only one. And it is that of a single person, the resurrection namely of our Lord Jesus Christ, the significance of which is central to our understanding of the gospel. What the New Testament makes glaringly clear to us is that apart from Jesus' resurrection, there is no life, no blessing, no holiness, and no resurrection for any of us. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not raised, your faith is vain, and you're still in your sins. If, in fact, Christ has been raised, and he has from the dead, he is the first fruits, first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. Paul says there's a sequence here. Each in its own order, Christ, the first fruits, first resurrection, And then at his coming, at the end of the church age, those who belong to Christ, when the trumpet sounds and the Lord descends and the dead are raised, and those who believe in him meet him in the air and are forever with the Lord. Christ, the firstfruits, by his resurrection, then at his coming, at the end, those who belong to Christ. In other words, Jesus' resurrection, his first resurrection of his own body, is the guarantee of our bodily resurrection at the end. And you see how it is that we are given to share in Christ's resurrection before he comes. During this very age we live in, even while we're waiting for the resurrection of our body, nonetheless, Even in this age, there is a a raising, a making to life, a making alive. And that making alive that there is now is required because people by their nature 
are dead in their trespasses and sins. So Colossians says, you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, God made alive together with him. So Augustine is right. There is a spiritual raising as well as a physical raising, the resurrection of the body. The physical, the spiritual raising is absolutely essential if we are ever to go to heaven. So the writer, uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, raised with Christ, we are already enthroned with him in the heavenly places. Augustine is still with us. Let's ask him about this. He points us to these words in John 5, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. There are spiritually dead people, men and women, boys and girls walking around the streets of Philadelphia today and all over our world, spiritually dead. And God, by His grace, through the preaching of His Word or some other means that He uses, will cause them to hear. Hear and live. And Augustine says, they that hear are they who obey the call of the gospel, believe the gospel, preserve, persevere uh, to the end. Every one of us by nature is dead in sin till we hear the call of the Holy Spirit through the gospel enabling us, giving us the gift of faith, enabling us to respond and receive and rest on the promises. Or as Augustine puts it, justified from our ungodliness and quickened, made alive from our death. So everybody in this room who shares a part in Christ's first resurrection has heard him call them to himself and responded to that call, even now, even now reigns with him in the heavenly places. You you have a double identity if you're a Christian. Your earthly identity and your heavenly identity. Do you know God has said that the saints will judge the world? Do you know that God has said the saints will judge the angels? We're being prepared for that. Well, this thousand years then embraces the entirety of the church's age. And at the edge, end of that period, Satan is released. And we've been reading about that really in the previous chapters. We've seen how everything is moving forward. Everything is getting worse as it were. The world is getting out of control until eventually the Antichrist comes onto the scene with the devil behind him. And the false prophet comes onto the scene with a devil behind him. And things turn ugly for the church. That's what's being described from verse 7 and following As the church, the earthly church that represents the holy city, the heavenly Jerusalem in its earthly form, is now hounded by the enemy until God intervenes with the coming of Christ and the fire falls and consumes them. 
and the devil and all his works are thrown into the lake of fire. God will yet be a friend to the church. And it's then that the great white throne, we've had iterations of this, we've seen this introduced again and again and again and again throughout the book, and now this is the final time. This is the great white throne. Him who's seated on the throne is none other than the Lord Jesus, to whom all judgment has been given. He is the judge. Before that throne, every, every human being who ever lived, wherever they lived and wherever they died even, everybody is brought before that throne. And there's a book. The books are opened. What books are these? These are the books about your life. Your angel who's been with you since you were conceived in your mother's womb has been jotting down notes about every action, every word, every thought, every imagination of your heart. Everything is in that book. Everything is in that book. And at the great judgment, that book is opened. That book is opened. And everything that's in that book will be known to the universe at that judgment. How horrific is that? But there's another book. Thank God there's another book. It's the role of God's elect. It's the book of life, it says here. The Lamb's book of life. It's the register of the new Israel of God. Where not only the tribes are listed, but every individual believer is listed. Do you know the wonderful thing is that every name that's written in that book has been justified by faith, has been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. I want to urge you this morning, do you know that your name is in that book? The book of life. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that in your great goodness that you would help us as believers to see this great station that we have as those who now are participants in the resurrection of Jesus. Spiritually, we've been made alive. We were dead. Now we're alive spiritually. That's why we're aware of spiritual things. It's why we can grieve over our sin even. It's why we can rejoice in your salvation. Thank you that you've made us alive and you've made us to reign with him. No matter how insignificant we are here, we are significant from heaven's point of view. We pray, Lord, for those who don't yet know where, where they stand. Who today are thinking about that book, the book of their life. I pray that today, Lord, they might, by calling on your name, be able to leave thinking of the book of life, the Lamb's book of life that promises resurrection and eternal splendor and beatitude 
in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.